Psalm 67 can be found on page 581 of the Pew Bibles. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with, with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The, the land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather, for reading to us. Thank you, Reverend Tim, and all those who invited us again. I, I, you invited me here before, very kindly, about a year ago. Uh, and Tim actually asked me to speak on a very similar subject that day as today. Um, I think the brief I was given, World Church Partnerships from a Biblical Perspective. I recall uh, seeking that day last year to outline some of the values that can helpfully underpin our thinking for when a UK church is seeking to develop partnerships in other parts of the world. There's no shortage of churches and pastors and agencies uh, that seek the attention of the resources of the Western Church. Um, and on the selecting of partnerships, I suggested that day that we ask three questions. Number one, is what they are doing kingdom-based as opposed to building their own little kingdoms? Um, secondly, is their approach to ministry holistic or integral? In other words, is there a healthy understanding of the need for us not only to faithfully proclaim the gospel, uh, but also to practically demonstrate it through our deeds and to see it manifested um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Words, works and wonders, if you like, working in harmony together. And the third um, thing that we looked at in the last visit I made, it, the question was, is it sustainable? Are your potential partners merely seeking continual handouts or do they have some understanding of what to invest into in a way that genuinely leads them to sustainability and multiplication? So briefly today, let's assume that we now have some global partnerships in mind, and indeed you have and you function well within them. Let's look at what we can learn then from the New Testament about world church partnerships, whatever they are, and of the potential and of the pitfalls of cross-cultural relationships across the church uh, in order to help us establish good practice um, when relating to international partners. So the final words that Jesus said to his disciples, they were missional, they were outgoing, they were cross-cultural. His final instruction was, go and make disciples. Of whom? Of all nations. And his final promise, if you like, was, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, locally, regionally, nationally, internationally. And it's maybe natural that most churches focus on their Jerusalems, in other words, their neighbourhoods, their parish, their village, etc., and rightly so. 
If we can't live for Jesus where we are, what credibility do we have to seek to take him elsewhere? But these final words of Jesus are merely examples of the constant missional, sending, going theme of the whole of scriptures. From Genesis, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country to the land to which I'll send you. Through to Revelation, all nations will come and worship before you, including the psalm right in the middle that we just had read to us. It's abundantly clear that God's culture was for his people to cross cultures, to represent his culture to all cultures around the world. If we have global mission in our hearts, uh, we are therefore likely to be somewhere within the ballpark of his will and calling. But it's not all straightforward, is it? It's not just a matter of sending a short-term team of young people to Bulgaria to paint the walls of an orphanage or to send the pastor to preach at the same church in India once a year. We call the fifth New Testament book, the Acts of the Apostles, but sometimes it looks to me more like the reticence of the apostles or even the mistakes of the apostles. Um, In Acts chapter 5, for example, we read about the mess that Ananias and Sapphira made of their lives. And in Acts chapter 9, we can just feel the fear that this other guy, Ananias, had felt before um, God persuaded him to visit Saul after his conversion, if you remember. And then we come to Peter in Acts chapter 10. He was so slow to understand God's heart for other cultures. Have a read of it again sometime. When an angel instructed Cornelius, a Gentile, to ask Peter, a Jew, to come and share the gospel with him, Peter needed to hear an extraordinary, supernatural, heavenly vision three times before his brain would even begin to accept what he was being told. Gentiles? Oh, surely not, Lord, he said. Followed, we read, by wondering, thinking, and hesitation. These are the apostles, right? Just after they all baptized in the Holy Spirit. What God was asking him to do was poles apart from anything he'd ever thought about before, completely contradictory to his theological worldview, and was most definitely well outside his comfort zone. And even when Peter did haul himself into responding, to me he sounded grumpy, defensive, slow to respond, and (laughs) patronising. And then afterwards, um, when it did all happen, and after he'd met with Cornelius, the apostles, bless their hearts, they're so cautious, they objected, and Peter had to go and justify his actions to them, Acts chapter 11. Not a great start, would you agree? by the church in cross-cultural mission. But, to their credit, it wasn't long before Barnabas and Paul started undertaking regular cross-cultural travel for the sake of the gospel. However, again, we read by Acts chapter 15 of the conflicts and disagreements they had as they did so. Paul regularly talked uh, of the extreme difficulties he encountered as he travelled. We were harassed at every turn, he said. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Uh, Am I selling it to you? But in a way, these difficulties should encourage us as despite all these troubles and tensions, they did press on uh, through them all in obedience to God. The love of Christ controls us, says Paul. They really had begun to understand that God's culture was for his people to cross cultures, to represent his culture 
to all cultures around the world. Now, times have changed. And with travel being so much more available to us these days, many more people now have the opportunity to experience cross-cultural mission. So let's briefly seek to interpret biblical practice into the way we do cross-cultural mission today. Firstly, I noticed they sent their best. The early church sent the apostles and the prophets. Their best, their most anointed, most experienced people to head up cross-cultural mission. And to me, this reflects the seriousness with which they approached the subject, their understanding of just how fundamental this was to the heart of God, not some bolt-on. I would go as far as to say that there's no difference between theology and missiology. It's a bit of a debate amongst those who debate such things, but intrinsically, God's heart, can I say his DNA? It doesn't sound quite right, but his heart is mission. It is. You know, there's no, you you study God and you study mission. Secondly, I noticed that it cost them dearly. I, I make this assumption, really. The sending churches were ready to pay big prices. Imagine enjoying and benefiting from Paul and Barnabas' teaching and mentoring input week by week, but then actually agreeing to send them out for months and months at a time. There's a price to pay for investing into cross-cultural mission, as there is when church planting. The the mother church uh, that sends its best can almost die in childbirth and needs tender nurturing and new faith and vision as it builds itself up again. But as Jesus said, unless a seed is sown into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. If it dies, it bears much fruit. It's the nature of the kingdom. Thirdly, the early church, I, could, I, I see that they saw its mentoring potential. The early church used cross-cultural mission opportunities as a strategy to equip up-and-coming leaders. Can you name some of the apprentices and the companiers that went with Paul on his travels? Timothy, I hear. Titus, I hear. Mark. Which, who was that? Barnabas. Yeah, great. Yeah, they're the ones that probably... Scored the most goals, weren't they? In alphabetical order, we read of Aristarchus, Barnabas, Epaphras, Gaius, Jason, John Mark, Luke, Onesimus, Silas, Sopater, Sosthenes, Timothy, Trophimus, and Tychicus, the little one, um, all of whom would have benefited greatly and grown immensely through their extensive travels with Paul. Does sound a little bit like the lineup of a Premier League football team, including substitutes, doesn't it? It can, uh, to, to engage with cross-cultural mission connected the early church to the bigger picture. Engaging missionally with other places strengthened the awareness and the confidence of the local church regarding the world around them. It put things in proportion. It gave them the opportunity to respond to global need. Despite their severe trials and extreme poverty, the Macedonian church urgently pleaded with Paul for the privilege of financially contributing to the needs of some of the Lord's people who they didn't know and probably would never, ever meet. 
the early church considered it a real honor. In Philippians 1, Paul says to the Philippians, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. To the Romans, he said, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And to the Galatians, he said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, neither male nor female. He could have said neither the one who sent or the one who received them. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There was a genuine humility in Paul as he traveled. He understood and acknowledged the very different contexts and cultures. But he believed in partnership. He believed in reciprocity. He believed that our common dependency is in Christ. And I've worked with some agencies that will only go where they are invited. I know others to, who determine to receive as many teams as they send, to invest as much into hosting as they do into sending. And the strapline of the short-term teams program that I developed a decade ago with Samaritan's Purse was hungry to learn, eager to serve. It was deliberately that way around. And my Raising Families book is published on the premise that the UK church has a huge amount to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world. We need to learn how to sit at the feet of those we have previously regarded as poor. Another one was the early church. Very briefly, I'll just whip through these ones. They clarified their expectations. So important. Paul laid out why he was coming, what he expected, what the host church could expect. And there's so much more we could learn about establishing and agreeing clear expectations. It really is vital. They thought covenantally. I've probably made that word up, but I'll explain what I mean. When Westerners from mission partnerships, um, when they form mission partnerships, rather, their, their words are very warm. But something deeper down, their worldview conditions them to think more contractually often in quite clinical money terms and with time frames. But many majority world mindsets don't think that way. They think covenantally, which goes much deeper. It crosses more boundaries. It involves genuine trust and devotion, and it never comes to an end. Again, we reintroduce the whole concept of expectations and how they can easily miss one another. And I think this is the final one. It wasn't primarily about money. There's so much more we could say about this. Money always creates an uneven playing field. And this power imbalance must be so clearly understood and genuinely worked through if God is going to be glorified, his church built, and his kingdom come. So there's a few things to tussle with, really, um, shared with you this morning. Thank you very much um, for inviting us. May I pray with you before I sit down. Dear Heavenly Father, we, all of us in our hearts, we bless you for being our Father, for being so merciful, so kind to us. For giving of your best in the most extraordinary example of cross-cultural mission that Jesus came from heaven to earth at such price. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, for paying the prices that we can sit here and sing that it is well with our soul because of the salvation, the mercy, the grace of God. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this church. 
Lord, will you protect and establish what, uh, what you're doing? Uh, that many will come to Christ. That the influence of this community in their neighbourhood will be extraordinary. We pray for Melvin and his team in Ndola this morning. And we bless them, Father. Uh, that, uh, thank you for their work in Tanzania this week. And we pray for them. That again, you will establish what you are doing uh, through them in Zambia in these days. And we pray for Samaritan's Purse. And thank you that as an agency, that it has committed to this work with these values. We'd ask for your blessing and favor upon them in the precious name of Jesus.